When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sabat mater dolorosa, juxta crucem lacrimosa, dum pendebat filiu. The main purpose for your having come together is to live harmoniously in your house, intent upon God, with one heart and soul. Therefore, call nothing your own, but let everything be yours in common. Be assiduous in prayer at the hours and times appointed. Subdue the flesh, so far as your health permits, by fasting and abstinence from food and drink. In your walking, standing, and every movement, Let nothing occur to give offence to anyone who sees you, but only what becomes your holy state of life. The Rules of How to Live a Monastic Life, penned by St. Augustine of Hippo in the year 400 AD. From that time on, particularly in the Middle Ages, Christian monasteries played an integral role in the generation and spread of knowledge. A monastery education was the best you could get, and scholarship flourished behind its walls and monks became expert in a wide range of fields, including astronomy, medicine, even beer-making and beekeeping. How did monasteries become such important centres of learning and literacy? To answer this intriguing question, History Hits' Rob Weinberg spoke to Dr E.L. Poleg at Queen Mary University of London. This is How and Why History. How did it happen that monasteries in the Middle Ages became such important educational institutions? It was actually quite a coincidence. They were just in the right place at the right time with the rise of new kind of communities at a time that the Roman Empire was sinking down and its old schools and learning infrastructure was gradually crumbling. So how were monasteries funded? Were they independent of political forces or did they have sponsors? Not at all, they're not really independent. They tried to assert an independence at certain points in history, but generally they were reliant on the local lords and monarchs for their sustainability. They got land bequests from the local nobility in exchange for services. And who became monks? Were children committed by their parents? Yes, this is what we call oblates, children who are given to the monasteries by their parents, primarily from the nobility and even the royalty, in exchange for land. So the child was given to the monastery alongside a plot of land or something he would have gotten in his inheritance. 
and they would become monks. This was the main way for people to become monks during the early Middle Ages. And it created a sort of a monasteries, monastic communities that are very much of the higher echelons of church and society. So people came into the monastery when they were very young, but also when they were very old. We have evidence of kings and queens and the high nobility who entered the monastery either before death or when they got kicked out of power and it was considered to be a safe place to keep them in. Particular monasteries develop reputations because of the kind of monks they had there. Did people then seek out places for their children to go to particular monasteries? Yes, some monasteries became important hubs of knowledge that really controlled production of manuscripts and dissemination of knowledge in medieval Europe. Important monasteries like St. Gall or Fulda became really centers of learning unparalleled in the early Middle Ages and had a huge reputation for that. Other monasteries depend on their geographical locations because centers of localized knowledge or even of cultural transmission. For example, monasteries in northern Spain became important centers for the transmission of knowledge between Islamic Spain, Spain was still mostly under Muslim rule at the time, and the rest of Christian Europe. So did studying at a monastery require you to actually become a monk or could you attend as a pupil? There were monastic schools and cathedral schools in which you did not need to be a monk. Monks were typically the ones studying there, especially to higher levels. But there are all sorts of in-betweens, also people who are clergy but not monks. Especially we see that more and more as we progress in the centuries, and we have more knowledge of that if we think about the 12th century and the cathedral schools. Some of the most important students and teachers were not necessarily monks, like for example Abelard. And presumably they became centers of learning and therefore would have good libraries. They had amazing libraries. The best libraries in Christendom in the early Middle Ages were in monasteries. At a time when a lot of public and private libraries, typical of the Roman times, were crumbling, monasteries became hubs of knowledge where books were kept and more important than that, books were copied because books would not survive for eternity. And one of the main occupations of monks was to copy the books. And we have a lot of works surviving from late antiquity or from the early Middle Ages, not in the original copies, but in the copies made later on by monks. If we think about the time of the Carolingians under Charles the Great, at about the year 800, huge monastic revival, huge moments of learning, and huge amount of books being copied in monasteries, books we wouldn't have had in any other way. So they're copying books, but it's important to remember that books were also extremely expensive, primarily because of the parchment, a very expensive substance. You know, you need to have quite a lot of calf or sheep in order to make a book. So sometimes, they're reusing their old books to make new books because with parchment you can take your knife, the pen knife, and scrape the parchment out of its previous writings and rewrite on it something else. Now, the good thing about it for us as historians is that the old writing does not disappear. It is hidden under the new writing. 
It's called a palimpsest. And now with new technologies, multispectral imaging, we can reveal what's underneath these writings. And we can reveal through that, we discover old works that hasn't survived in any other way, like the works of Archimedes, for example. Sometimes we discover books that the monks actually did not want to keep. So, for example, in binding, they would put also pieces of parchment to make the binding. And this was from books that the monks did no longer want or need or actually detest its writing. So inside bindings, we also find fragments of books that the monks did not want to keep. They did not think very highly on, which of course for us is very interesting. And sometimes, also for the later Middle Ages, these are very interesting books. So in a lot of Christian bindings, we find remnants of Jewish books that the church confiscated. Was the education in the monastery solely religious? I think the best thing to think about it is move away from religious and secular division. Because for them, everything was religious, but in different ways. And a good example for that is astronomy. Monks were the best astronomers in medieval Europe. They looked at the sky, we have star charts and tables and all sorts of astrological information that the monks were creating. If we think about it, the reason for them to do that was not just looking at the sky and appreciating its beauty or seeing the magnificence of medieval astronomy and astrology. It was also because of a very practical demand for the monks, because of Easter. Easter is a very difficult holiday to celebrate because it follows both a lunar and a solar calendar. Incidentally, this was because of the Christian need to separate themselves from Judaism and to make sure that Easter does never ever correspond to the Jewish Passover, which follows a primarily lunar calendar. That complicated the life of medieval clergy because they had to keep thinking how to find a date of next Easter without computers. So they kept looking at the sky, looking at lunar cycles and trying to figure it out. So for them, astronomy, for example, was not just a secular pursuit. It also had a very clear religious rationale. The same for other arts like rhetoric, for example, or Latin, which survived in monasteries, was necessary also to read the Bible. So the primary occupation of monks in monasteries was not scientific pursuit or reading books. It was prayer and devotion. But in order to do that efficiently, they needed to know Latin, they needed to know grammar, they needed to read the works of the classics. So because of their religious endeavor, because they are such a hub of intellectual communities, they engage in the most cutting-edge science of its time. And that's why the separation between secular and religious learning is quite artificial when we come to look at monasteries. The same is true also for magic, where a lot of magical texts we have come from monasteries and they were performed there. Because if we think about it, their worshipping in the course of the liturgy was also similar in a way to a type of magic. So it's a more a continuum than an absolute break. And are there treatises on agriculture and gardening and some of the other kinds of things that they would have been doing around the monastery? Very much so. According to their rule, the most common rule was the Benedictine rule, especially in the early Middle Ages. Gardening was an important part of monastic life, as well as beekeeping. So we have treatises about that, we have works on monks, and it served both a practical goal, feeding the monks, but also a theological one, a sort of meditation at times. Were monasteries also at the cutting edge of technology? 
Yes, very much so, because we think then about monasteries as communities who are highly educated and quite affluent in regards to their surroundings, which means they're able to experiment with new type of technologies. Now we think about a period before engines, before steam, so most of the power would come from water, water mills, and sometimes windmills. And we have a brilliant description by an important 12th century Cistercian abbot called Bernard of Clairvaux, describing a stream going through an abbey and running its different mills. Entering the abbey under the boundary wall, the stream hurls itself impetuously at the mill, where in the welter of movement it strains itself, first to crush the wheat beneath the weight of the millstones, then to shake the fine sieve which separates flour from bran. Already it has reached the next building. It replenishes the vats to prepare beer for the monks. The stream does not yet consider itself discharged. The fullers established near the mill beckon to it. In the mill, it had been occupied in preparing food for the brethren. Leaving here, it enters the tannery, where in preparing the leather for the shoes of the monks, it exercises as much exertion as diligence. Then it dissolves in a host of streamlets and proceeds along its appointed course to the duties laid down for it, looking out all the time for affairs requiring its attention, whatever they may be, such as cooking, sieving, turning, grinding, watering or washing, never refusing its assistance in any task. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. So who were some of the most important philosophers and medieval writers who were actually monks? Well, we can go back very early even to Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop in North Africa, a very Christian North Africa in late antiquity, also establishing a monastic community who was probably the most important philosopher of the late antiquity and early Christianity, as well as his roughly contemporary, St. Jerome, who was a monk living in isolation, who translated the entire Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, constituting the Vulgate, the Latin that people were using throughout the Middle Ages and early modernity. But it doesn't stop there. If you think about monastic pursuit and about the lack of separation between religious and secular, some of the works monks created fitted both a secular and a religious use. For example, the Venerable Bede, a very important monk and abbot in the early Middle Ages in Anglo-Saxon times, created an important chronicle, a history of the English people, telling the history of, of the English people, but also thinking about world history from the creation of the world and probably ending with the apocalypse, so serving both purposes. Bid also created important astronomical treatises. In the 12th century, we see an explosion of interest in science, in astronomy, in philosophy. And at the forefront of that are monks, even if you just take the example of England. Walker of Malvern, prior of Great Malvern, he was also an astronomer, creating lunar tables. Some of them translated with the help of a, a Jewish convert called Peter Alfonsi from the Arabic. Adelard of Bath went to Sicily to translate Arabic knowledge. Abbot Suger in the 12th century as well, created a new type of architecture to support his very, very important religious establishment of Saint-Denis outside of Paris, thus creating the first monument of Gothic architecture in medieval Europe. How did people view the monks? What was the relationship with the society around them? It changes greatly. We continuously see moments of reform within the church because monasteries were important religious institutions. They got huge bequests of land and money and some of them got extremely corrupted as a result of that. So sometimes we see no separation between lay occupations and monastic ones. And then a monastic revival will occur with people aiming to go back to earlier idea of asceticism and rejecting the world. So we see continuous movements of reform within the monasteries and within the church, trying to go away from wealth and influence and going back to an earlier ideal of poverty, of living, recreating the Bible. And we see that continuously with the rise, for example, of the Cistercian order, a very influential order in the High Middle Ages, and later in the 13th century with the rise of the Dominicans and the Franciscans, the mendicant orders, mendicant meaning like beggars, refusing to own anything, who were also instrumental in the creation of the first universities. At what point did monasteries become educational institutions and then universities? Well, 
they have always been important educational institutions. Even if we think about Vivarium in the 6th century, for example, monasteries were hubs of learning from the very beginning. But gradually they became more open. And what we can see in the 12th century is the rise of the cathedral schools, which became centers of learning, but not in isolated locations like many of the monasteries, but within towns. So we see not just the creation of knowledge, but also the popularization of knowledge, where knowledge was transmitted to wider audiences across the medieval world, centered in towns, which also grew in importance at the very same time of the 12th century. And this is part of the phenomenon that we are calling the Renaissance of the 12th century. This new explosion of knowledge building on the work of the classics and disseminating it far and wide. To what extent did the concept of the mosque and its surrounding educational institutions then influence how monasteries evolved? That is a good question. The first monasteries evolved, of course, before Islam. But the rise of Islamic learning corresponded to another moment of intense creativity in Western Europe. So when we think about the 8th century and the 9th century, the Carolingian Renaissance, so this rise of learning under the auspices of Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor, a very powerful monarch in medieval Europe. This corresponded to a huge rise of learning that took place in Baghdad at the very same time under Harun al-Rashid. We know that there were transmissions of knowledge of people and of objects between the two establishments. So from Baghdad, for example, Harun al-Rashid would send gifts to Charlemagne, the most famous of that being, of course, a white elephant that made its way very, very gradually across the Alps and into Charlemagne's court in Aachen. Did monks also get sent out of their monasteries to educate others? Yes. We don't know enough about this phenomenon because we know very little in the, at the end of the day about the reality of life in monasteries. But many monasteries were responsible for the education, primarily the religious education, of their surroundings. So in the early Middle Ages in particular, we know that monasteries and cells of monasteries, so isolated units that are reporting back to a mother house, were responsible as in parochial or parish capacities to their surrounding environment. We talked about monasteries growing into sort of educational establishments and then becoming associated with cathedrals and so on. So did they also become important economic centers? Yes. Monasteries were huge economic centers in medieval Europe. They're affluent communities, productive, centers of trade as well as learning. And even if we just take the book production, for example, it needed a constant influx of animals to support that. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of sheep or calf just to make the books the monks were writing and reading. And monks were also producing various goods. There's no surprise that even nowadays in Belgium, beer is associated with monasteries because monasteries were important centers of production for beer throughout the Middle Ages, the same for wine. They received gifts of land from 
the nobility, which made them very affluent but also important players in the economic and social life of the medieval communities around them. Monasteries were also lodging houses for travellers. Did they contribute to the spread of knowledge that they might have picked up? This is a good question. We know that some of uh, the hospitals, the early hospitals, which were meant to host people and not necessarily to cure them, were run by monks, but also had important books. One example of that we know from the biography of Charlemagne at uh, about the year 800. He established a hospital, more similar to a hostel, for pilgrims in Jerusalem. And as part of that establishment, he bequeathed to that hospital a biblioteca, a library, most likely the Bible in several volumes. So that supported readings of religious nature to people who would host in that hospital. When the monasteries transformed into universities, did the complexion of monasteries change at that point? In a way, it did. The new universities were religious establishments, but were not strictly monastic. So if we think about early universities, like Bologna, Paris, Oxford, they were religious establishments. They would be affiliated with the church. And people living in what would become the colleges were living similarly to monastic life, which some traces of that still exist in Oxbridge colleges today. But they were not monks often. And it changes the dynamic of knowledge and knowledge distribution in medieval Europe. We can see that very clearly even in book production. Whereas in the early Middle Ages, most important books were written in monasteries, in monastic scriptoria, where monks would sit and copy laboriously books as actually is mandated in the rule, in the guide to, to, for monks as to how to live. By the time universities are created, in the 1200s, they rely on books being written by lay scribes and lay stationers, people for whom this is their day job. This did not go down well. Roger Bacon, a religious person, commented upon these stationers very, very critically, calling them uxorati et illiterati, womanly, meaning married, so not part of the clergy or monks, and illiterate. He really rejected the idea of lay stationers, but he could not stop this phenomenon. And from the high Middle Ages onward, most books were produced outside monasteries by professionals for whom that was their day job. Teams of scribes, of illuminators who would work together to create magnificent books, a lot of time for lay patrons or for orders that were not strictly monastic in a sort of being cloistered inside a certain institution, like, for example, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, the Mendicants, who moved away from the monastic ideal of stability of being in one establishment outside of the world to be becoming embedded within towns, within society, and preaching and educating the laity. How important then were the monasteries, in conclusion, for the development of knowledge, education in the Middle Ages? Monasteries were a crucial link in the transmission of knowledge in medieval Europe. Without monasteries, we wouldn't have had many of the classical works that we have today. Monks copied these books, 
thought about them and created new knowledge. They transferred knowledge from Arabic and Jewish knowledge into Latin, into Christian knowledge. They filled a critical role at a time between the decline of public schools of the late Roman Empire and the rise of the universities in the 13th century. Al Polet, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. How and why history? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.